Welcome back to Survival Matters, a podcast about surviving and flourishing in the 21st century. I'm Mark, your host from Australia 21. We are an independent, not-for-profit public policy think tank that does research on the critical social, environmental, economic and national security issues facing Australia. On our last episode, we spoke to Emeritus Professor Bob Douglas, a retired public health academic and founding director of Australia 21. He spoke to us about the importance of moving away from a worldview of anthropocentrism, a belief that humans are more important than any other species, to ecocentrism, a way of thinking that places more importance on looking after our environment and its ecosystems. In this episode, we're going to speak with Julian Cribb, an Australian science communicator, journalist and author about his most recent book called Surviving the 21st Century. Julian, can you please tell us more about the 10 threats that you discuss in your book? Yes, um, in my view, the greatest threats to the future of humanity are these. First of all, there is ecological collapse, which is basically the, the death and extinction of all of the Earth systems that support life, including human life. Secondly, there's resource scarcity, which is the growing depletion and shortage of vital resources for living, like water, topsoil, forests, fish, clean air, and certain important minerals. Thirdly, and this often gets overlooked, weapons of mass destruction. Now, there are nine countries that now have the power to obliterate civilization, and more are claiming it. Also, new technologies are making the risk very much more dangerous. Fourthly, climate change. We're already on track for plus three to four degrees, and potentially we could reach as high as plus nine or ten degrees um, if various Earth system feedbacks such as frozen methane, start to vent into the atmosphere. Fifthly, global poisoning. This is something that almost everybody overlooks, but there's this avalanche of human chemical emissions that is poisoning every single person on the planet every single day in our air, our water and our food. It's threatening all life. It's the reason that the bees are disappearing, the reason the insects are disappearing, the reason the birds and the frogs are vanishing as well. Now, sixth, there is food insecurity. This is already a driver of recent wars, including World War II, I might add, and the Syrian civil war. Food insecurity is reinforced by an unreliable climate, unsustainable industrial farming systems, and growing disputes over food, land, and water all around the world. Seventh, pandemic diseases are becoming worse. With the emergence of new pathogens from regions that we've ruined, uh, reinforced by the climate change, the increase in travel, and opportunities for humans to exchange diseases. Eighth, population and megacities. Now, no major city on Earth can feed itself. And thanks to fragile modern food chains, we're going to have cities of 10 and 20 million people, which might starve within days if the food chain breaks. Population, human populations are outrunning their resources everywhere you look at the moment, especially water. Ninth, new technologies are giving vast power to a handful of individuals unchecked by societies. These technologies are things like artificial intelligence, robotic killing machines, and universal public surveillance. And finally, tenth, is the apparently endless capacity of we humans for self-delusion, notably in cases like money, politics, um, religious beliefs, and the human narrative, the stories we tell ourselves. And all of these make us more susceptible to real risks. Now, it's essential that we overcome all 10 of these existential threats. We can't just fix them one at a time. 
They have to be fixed altogether. And the way you fix them, we must make none of them worse. We have to return the planet to a sustainable population within three to four generations or pay the consequences, including runaway warming, global famine and nuclear war. So Julian, why is it necessary for young Australians to take a leading role in this issue? Young people all over the world are the people who are going to have to solve these problems. The older people have failed. It's as obvious as that. Greta Thunberg, the little Swedish girl who organised the climate protests, she's pointed that out. The adults have failed. It is now down to the youth of the world to fix this whole problem, to make human beings a survivable civilization. Now, the point that I really want to emphasise is I, I enumerated the risks. All of these risks are capable of being solved. They are all capable of being brought under control. What we need is worldwide action, and it is down to the youth of the world to supply that action, I think, because the youth is already communicating with itself. It's already using social media, and it's interconnecting all around the world, asking itself how it can solve these, these problems. Now, what we have to avoid doing is in solving one risk, we make another risk worse. And for example, if you try to solve the food security risk just by throwing more fossil fuels and chemicals at the problem, you will actually just end up making climate change worse. So the solutions that we come up with must work across the board for all 10 risks. That's absolutely critical. And this is the missing element. People are not talking about this in the world. They think you can fix these, these risks one at a time. You can't. They've all got to be fixed together. So we've got to think about complex solutions uh, that do the job and don't make any of these worse. And the answer is not going to lie in doing more of the same. And that is a recipe for disaster. We have to change our expectations about how we do things, even simple things like shopping or travel. We have to change the way we, we eat, the way we clothe ourselves, the way we warm our houses or cool our houses. All of those things must change. We must get towards a world economy that recycles everything and it wastes nothing and poisons nothing. That's called a circular economy. That's the way you can keep on having growth, but without doing damage. At the moment, growth is dependent on material goods and resources, and that's destroying the planet. So we need to move to an economy that is not based on material goods, but is based on ideas. One solution as well is to move a lot of global food production back into cities. Why? Because cities at the moment are absolute fountains of waste. They produce enormous quantities of water and nutrients which they just throw away. They throw them into the oceans, they, they chuck them in the landfill, they pollute rivers with them and things like that. We need to recycle all of that water and all of those nutrients into the food of tomorrow. And cities are perfectly positioned and there's a lot of new technologies for doing this. So that's another example of how there is a ready solution to the problem which people are not yet addressing. Julian, in your book, you talk about the need for a circular economy, sky farming, rewilding and a green energy revolution. Can you please describe these measures and how they will help us in addressing the 10 risks? Yeah, well, if we, if we transferred, for example, about uh, a third to a half of the world's food production off farms and into cities, this would have a number of effects. First of all, it would make the food system much more sustainable because it's based on the recycling of water and nutrients. We'll use next to no land area compared with modern agriculture. 
it, it will be a much more sustainable system. It will use far less pesticides and things like that. So it won't be polluting the, the planet with poisons. An urban-based food system can be very healthy. It can produce clean, healthy, fresh food every single day. And people aren't getting that at the moment. And they're dying as a result of it. I mean, four out of five Australians now die by their own hand, uh, which is the hand holding the fork, from a really lousy diet that the industrial food system has produced for us. So we need to go back to a fresh, healthy, clean diet, and that can be supplied. But if you stopped producing food, a lot of food, on farms, what you can also do there is rewild the world. You can put back the forests and the grasslands, and all the places that we've cut down and despoiled for agriculture can be restored. And they can be managed by the people who are now farmers and indigenous people. So that, and you can use these places, 25 million square kilometres of the world can be used for rewilding and to bring back the species that we are currently exterminating. So in other words, if we put our food in the cities, we can end the sixth extinction. But there's another dimension to this. If you study the cause of wars in the last 150 years, Nearly always these wars have been driven by a shortage of food, land and water. In other words, people fighting over food. So if you supply an adequate supply of low-cost, clean, healthy food to the world, you automatically lower the tensions that lead to war. So in other words, there's a peace dividend from having a sustainable food supply. So in this way, you reduce the threat of all kinds of war, including nuclear war. And so if we get the food thing right, it's going to address a lot of things. It's going to reduce the climate risk. It's going to increase uh, human health. It's going to bring back the species that we're currently extinguishing. It's going to reduce the risk of war. And that's an example of a cross-cutting solution. You've mentioned our ability for self-delusion as a vital risk factor. Given that we live in a time where we have endless information at our fingertips, what is your view of the relationship between self-delusion and social media? Okay, well, first of all, if you think about common self-delusions, I mean, the commonest delusion of all is money. Money is entirely a figment of the human imagination. I mean, dogs don't have money, monkeys don't have money, fish don't have money. Only humans have money. It exists only in our head. When we had the global financial crisis in 2008, it was caused by banks producing money out of thin air and lending it to people who couldn't repay it. Then, to get the world out of crisis, the banks of the world printed a whole lot of new money out of thin air. So, in other words, money is an imaginary commodity, and it's endless, absolutely infinite. If you use an infinite commodity such as money on a finite planet such as the Earth, you will run out of planet long before you run out of money. Okay? So, so money is an example of a human delusion which we need to get our heads around. We need to change the monetary system in order to have a sustainable world. We know that, uh, you know, religion, politics, people get very, very, um, you know, hot-tempered with one another. They often fight with one another. But these, again, are, are belief-driven. They're not evidence-driven systems. So if religion were able to rededicate itself to a sustainable world. And that actually has been done when uh, Pope Francis in his, in his uh, encyclical Laudato Si did say, look, look, if, if we want the earth to look after us, we have to look after the earth. I mean, that's good science and it's good theology. So it's possible for religion to change its perspective. It's possible for politics to change its perspective from these narrow, self-interested, greedy issues 
to the issue of human survival and human preservation and the preservation of the planet. And we can see that happening. You know, the kids around the world are becoming active in the climate movement. So we can see that humans all around the world are starting to become aware and they're dragging politics with them. The politics will have to follow wherever the people go. So this is how you overcome the sort of problems of, of the misinformation that is circulated by the fossil fuel lobby and its paid politicians. Because most governments are in the pay of the fossil fuels lobby. We have to realise that. And that's where a lot of the fake news comes from, from vested interests desperately trying to defend their wealth that they've acquired from us. You mentioned we have a strong ability to create and live from fictions such as money. In your book, you also talk about the need for a creative economy to emerge. Is the creative economy related to reducing our dependency on fictions? Yes, uh, absolutely. At the moment, we express wealth through material goods, cars, houses, you know, aeroplanes, all of, all of the physical things that we regard as the hallmarks of a, of a wealthy society. But the ideas economy, which is you know, software, entertainment, games, media, all of the things that come out of the human head, is, is now becoming a bigger economy than the material economy. And it doesn't have a big carbon footprint, unlike the material economy, because there's not a lot of concrete involved in making a piece of software. There's not a lot of fuel involved in making a piece of software. So we can transition the world economy from a material economy to a non-material economy and still get wealthier or more prosperous as a society while we do it. So that's an example. Of it. Also, I think, you know, if we were, if we were to change uh, the monetary system by adopting an earth standard currency, i.e. one that was predicated on the value of all the earth's resources, then I think we would rapidly change this issue about money having no, no end to it. If the value of an earth dollar was dependent on the, you know, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere and things like that, then you'd have a very different picture because the value of your house would go down if the value of the dollar went down, and the value of the dollar would go down if you're trashing the earth. Whereas if you're repairing the earth, the value of the dollar would go up. So we need to re reward that kind of good behaviour. So these are the kinds of solutions that need to be discussed at the moment. You're outlining the need for significant social change, Julian. Another social change that you say is essential is the age of women. What would you say to young women right now who are concerned about the 10 risks we face as a society and want to make a change? To young women, I would say you are the leaders of the world of the future. You are going to lead in business. You are going to lead in politics. You are going to lead in religion and in society, in every sphere of human endeavour. You are going to be the leaders. Why do I say this? This is not feminism. Uh, it's not even equal opportunity. If you look at history, um, you know, men have been successful. Why? Because they have, they like simple solutions to things. They like machines, chemicals and weapons to solve their problem. And they like to solve the problem fast and they don't care what the consequences of that solution are. So we spray a pesticide, but we don't care if it kills the bees as well as killing the pests. So men don't think long term. Women do not start wars. Men do. Women do not cut down forests or empty the oceans. Men do. Women do not invent and spread the world's toxic chemicals. It's mainly men who do that. Uh, it is men who release most of the carbon that is currently destroying the planet. Again, so I think female behaviour is to think longer term than men. They think about the next generation. They think about the grandkids. 
So it's, it's innate in women that they take a longer view than men do, not just fix it now and to hell with the consequences. So women mm-hmm. are the natural leaders in this world. They might not have been the natural leaders 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago, but they are the natural leaders if humanity is to survive. So what I'm talking about here is not feminism. It is the new rules for human survival, which the threats that we have created to ourselves, um, you know, if, if they are to be overcome, we need female, thoughtful, wise leadership. So, Julian, I guess more broadly now, what message do you have for young people in general in challenging the status quo and promoting government action on this? How do you think young people can get involved and take initiative for their own future? Well, another thing I would like to mention is of enormous importance. We are actually changing the human species now. And the thing that is changing it is the internet and social media. For the first time in the entirety of human history, we are communicating with one another around an entire planet. Now, you know, when a baby is in the womb, there's a magical moment in the second trimester when all the neurons in the brain, the fetal brain, begin to hook up and suddenly intelligence is born, a being that is capable of thoughts, feelings, dreams, imagination, logic, rationality is suddenly created. Now, we're starting to do that around a planet. Through the internet, through social media, people are talking to one another at the speed of light all over the earth. And we're overcoming the original barriers, the geographic barriers, the cultural barriers, the nationalistic and religious barriers, the political barriers. Through this conversation, like the one and a half million kids who went on the climate strike, you know, ideas are being shared, solutions are being shared. Social media is the key to the human future because it is allowing us to think for the first time at supra-human level. Instead of just thinking as individuals, we are now being enabled to think as a species. By 2030, every single person on Earth will be online. That's an important thought. So for the first time, we can have a conversation across the whole human species. And of course, it is the youth of the world who will be using this technology to communicate with one another and answer the the problems, the issues, the challenges that I have outlined. Now, social media contains both good stuff and bad stuff, as we all know. Uh, I don't think that's a problem. Uh, Every society contains good things and bad things. Your own head contains good things and bad things. You just have to know which are the good things and go for those. So you just have to be discriminating and wise in your choice of the social media that that you elect to use. Uh, I think that that can be done quite easily, provided you're social media literate. Julian, that's all we have time for in this session. Thank you for joining us and sharing your ideas about these issues. Is there anything in particular you'd like to close with? I would like to say that the future of our species, Homo sapiens, is on the line. It is possible that we will extinguish civilization in this century if we do not take action. This is a very dire moment in our existence. It's the greatest existential emergency in in the whole of human history. But that's also a, a time of bounteous opportunity. Out of this difficult situation that we face, we can create wonderful new things. We can build a sustainable global civilization that will endure. Thank you. Today we heard from Julian Cribb. 
We learnt about the 10 risks we face as a species. We heard about the importance of creating a circular economy, sky farming, reforesting agricultural land and a green energy revolution to address these challenges. We also learnt about addressing our self-delusions, the need for the age of women and the importance of including young people in this conversation. In the next session, we'll speak with Hannah Ford, a state leader of the Australian Youth Climate Coalition and the winner of the 2018 ACT's Young Environmentalist of the Year Award, about how young people can take and are taking charge of the issue. The Survival Matters podcast has been prepared by volunteers and experts who are passionate about protecting our planet. Urgent action is needed, and we want Australians to listen to these podcasts and discuss the issues with their friends and families. Around the globe, we've seen the power of people acting together to make our world a better place. We will be reaching out to people around Australia, asking for their responses to the Big Five questions, so we can present them to our politicians and get a commitment to urgent action on these 10 threats to human survival. Help us show our politicians that the people of the country they represent feel strongly about these threats and want action. You can help by sharing these podcasts with as many people as you can, getting involved in a small group discussion on the Big Five questions discussed earlier that you can get from the Australia 21 website and provide us with your responses, and supporting our small crowdfunding campaign, which will start on the 29th of April. The campaign will assist us in reaching as many Australians as possible and show politicians that we care about our future and the future of those who will come after us. Find out more about the group discussions, the Big Five Questions and the crowdfunding campaign at australia21.org.au under Survival Matters. I'm Mark, your host from Australia 21, and thanks for listening to Survival Matters. Survival Matters.